from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Welcome to this Center for European Reform podcast. I'm Charles Grant, the CR's director. I'm here today to discuss Brexit and the Internal Market Bill with Catherine Barnard, who is a professor of European law at Cambridge University and also senior fellow at the UK Changing Europe programme. Welcome, Catherine. Hello there. What we hope to talk about in this podcast today is the Internal Market Bill and why it's been so important for the Brexit talks and how it may or may not derail them altogether. We also want to talk about the impact of the Internal Market Bill on the United Kingdom itself and London's relationship with Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, because there are important implications in the Internal Market Bill for the unity of the United Kingdom. We will touch upon the issue of dispute settlement mechanisms, which are very going to be a very important part of the Brexit talks. And finally, we'll discuss whether or not a deal is actually likely to come about or not overall. So um, you, you've done a lot of thinking about the Internal Market Bill, which has been a very controversial bill. Um, came out with this bill uh, several weeks back, which was basically an assault on the withdrawal agreement with which the government was negotiating its exit from the EU. Um, could you just t tell us very briefly why the Internal Market Bill was such a big deal and how, how surprising was it for the UK to apparently attack the principles of international law and, and, and why, why, why do people care about it? So thank you very much for this. There's, um, essentially, the bill is in two parts. The first part deals with the development of a UK-wide internal market. And that part was um, expected, albeit also highly controversial. But the surprising part was the second part, part five, which was bolted on apparently at the last minute, um, which dealt with perceived problems um, that the UK thought it was having with the EU, that the EU was threatening not to give the UK so-called third country status in respect of goods which would be moving from GB into Northern Ireland. And so there were three clauses put into the bill, originally 42, 43, 45, and now 44, 45 and 47 since the bill's gone to the Lords. And what those clauses do is, first of all, they say that there shall be no exit declarations on goods going from Northern Ireland to GB. Secondly, they say there shall be no uh, respect for the provisions on state aid in the Northern Ireland Protocol. And thirdly, they say none of this is justiciable. Now, just to be clear, those three clauses are essentially about giving powers to ministers And if ministers decide to exercise those powers, they will do those uh, three things. Um, and that was the shocking bit, that nobody expected that the UK would be quite so um, upfront and say we are directly giving ministers powers to contravene key parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is in itself a key part of the withdrawal agreement, the divorce text that Boris Johnson Uh, concluded the negotiations of um, this time last year. Of course, as, as we are, are aware, um, the EU didn't react very well to this. It was quite upset about this. And the EU said that it won't ratify any 
trade agreement unless the government pulls these relevant clauses out of the internal market bill. But it's now gone to the Lords. And because the reaction was so strong, not only uh, on the EU side, but also in the Conservative Party in the House of Commons, with a number of MPs very concerned about it, and the legal profession as well, the government is now saying, well, uh, don't worry, this is, a, this is a kind of a fallback mechanism. If, if the EU treats us badly and doesn't negotiate in good faith and doesn't give us a good deal, then we will activate these clauses to protect our interests. But the government is implying that if the EU does negotiate in good faith and the deal is doable, then they won't need these clauses and they can be removed at the, at the last minute. Does, does this, has this slightly softer line from the UK government reassured the EU? Is it doesn't, so have we sort of more or less put this row behind us now, Catherine? I think not, not least because the EU has started the process of launching enforcement or infringement proceedings against the UK for breach, not of the um, Northern Ireland Protocol as such, but for breach um, of Article 5 of the Withdrawal Agreement, which is the duty to act in good faith. And the EU is essentially saying that the UK is not acting in good faith by even proposing these clauses in a bill, even though um, they are only clauses giving powers to ministers, they will not in of themselves break um, the terms of the withdrawal agreement. But just by even having these clauses giving powers to ministers was enough, said the EU, to um, contravene Article 5 of the withdrawal agreement, the duty to act in good faith. Now, perhaps that's not as threatening as it sounds, um, because um, the EU knows that part of the purpose of the Internal Market Bill is to play to a domestic audience. On the other hand, the EU couldn't be seen to be taking a breach of the withdrawal agreement lying down, not least because, of course, it's also battling on other fronts. It wants to send out a message to other third countries um, that it won't tolerate um, breaches of agreement. And it also wants to send out messages internally, particularly to Hungary and Poland, who are rattling the EU's cages over rule of law issues. Right, so the EU isn't taking it lying down, but nevertheless, I think it's understood by all parties that if they can manage to agree on the, on the free trade agreement they're trying to reach, that the British government will withdraw the relevant clauses, at least, which at least would um, defuse the situation somewhat. Um, in any case, the British government does have concerns about the withdrawal agreement, not the whole thing, but there the, the are the concerns which you mentioned already, and the, the, the plus the additional concern, in, the, in addition to those you, points you raised, which is that goods going from Great Britain towards Northern Ireland, are, which are at risk of going on into the EU, uh, that is a concern of the British, that, that the EU may, may want to check for all, nearly all goods going into Northern Ireland in case they're at risk of going on to the EU, and the UK is worried about which goods those checks would apply to. And it, that it was not actually carried out. That, that was not dealt with in the internal market bill, but the government promised to deal with that problem in another piece of legislation, which hasn't yet appeared. Um, but all these problems, the, the export summary declarations, the state aid, the goods at risk and so on, and also the issue of um, whether farm produce are recognised as adequate to be, go from Great Britain into Northern Ireland, all these problems can be dealt with in the joint committee, which was set up to deal with any problems arising from withdrawal agreement. And would you expect, Catherine, that the Joint Committee will now manage to find ways of giving the British the reassurances they need about the operation of the withdrawal agreement? And there's a way of kind of de-dramatising de the whole thing. So I think there are various elements to that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I would say what is odd about the Internal Market Bill is that if 
as was apparently the case, that the UK was worried about um, not getting so-called third country status for animal products to go from GB to Northern Ireland. The Internal Market Bill doesn't address that problem because the Internal Market Bill is entirely about um, goods going from Northern Ireland to GB, i.e. from west to east, and not from east to west. And the um, issues raised by not getting third country status are apparently going to be dealt with in subsequent legislation, not the Internal Market Bill. And yet it all does seem to have been based on some misunderstanding because the EU has been clear that the UK would get third country status. And to be frank, why wouldn't it? Because up until the 31st of December, um, it has implemented fully all of the um, EU rules. Um, but the problem is that the UK hadn't asked. And furthermore, the UK had also not made clear that EU goods themselves would be treated um, in the same way and get third country status. Now, that seems to that row seems to have died down. Um, and so that is one possible solution. The other possible solution is to have a look at Article 16 of the um, Northern Ireland Protocol, which contains safeguard clauses. And uh, it allows the UK or the EU to act unilaterally um, if a particular serious economic or social issue was at stake. And what's odd is that the UK doesn't seem to have contemplated the use of Article 16. Um, nor do the negotiations in the Joint Committee, which is the committee between the EU and the UK, those don't seem to have been making good progress either. So it may well be that those clauses, what are now 44, 45 and 47, it may be that those clauses were indeed put in the bill with the deliberate intention of trying to give a kick up the backside to the negotiations to try and get things moving, because things have been in a doldrums pretty much all summer. Right. I guess if, if you're an optimist, and we at the CR are fairly optimistic about the prospects for a deal, which we'll come on to, uh, if you're an optimist, and we will argue that perhaps that the, the difficulties that the UK has with the, the joint agreement can be dealt with in the joint committee, which is on the UK side run by Michael Gove, who we believe wants a deal, on the EU side by Maris Sefcovic. And then if, if, if they do deal with those issues, then then what matters is the uh, is the free trade agreement itself, which which we won't get into in detail today in our podcast. But um, one of the, 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 but nevertheless, even if I'm, my optimism is justified and we can soon be focusing on just the, uh, the free trade agreement, nevertheless, surely the, the affair over the internal market bill has left a, a kind of a rather unpleasant taste in many people's minds. It has surely reduced trust in, from the EU side vis-a-vis -vis the UK. It may make the EU side review the, the dispute settlement mechanisms, perhaps rather tougher on dispute settlement mechanisms than it would otherwise have been. Do you think that's the case, Catherine? I think um, the, there has been an erosion of trust, not just with the internal market bill, but um, through um, the conduct of the negotiations. Now, of course, they are no negotiations and each side is playing hardball. But I think there was deep shock that a, a country that's traditionally prided itself on compliance with the law, including international law, um, should witness a cabinet minister standing up in the Commons and saying that we are planning to breach international law, albeit in a limited and specific way. And so it has made the EU wary. Now, the UK government says states breach international law all the time. That is already contested, but it must be said there is international law and international law. And this is a, the text of a really important treaty that was concluded um, less than a year ago by this very prime minister. 
Um, and the fact is he's now appearing to want to renege on aspects of an agreement that he himself um, so proudly negotiated. And so it's very likely that the EU will want to toughen up any um, uh, dispute resolution mechanism and furthermore is unlikely to have some sort of gentleman's agreement of some sort of soft provisional application of the agreement while things, the legal conditions, for example, legislation going through UK Parliament to give effect to the free trade agreement is sorted out. So the EU is likely to be tough. And what does tough mean? Tough essentially means what retaliation can be imposed. And this goes back to the fundamental question of what the overarching structure of any free trade agreement might look like. You might recall that the EU wanted to have one overarching um, governance framework, governance being the jargon for uh, the institutional mechanisms and the dispute resolution mechanism, whereas the UK wanted to have a number of separate agreements. And the reason why the UK wanted separate agreements was that there couldn't be retaliation across different areas. So if there's a breach in respect of uh, free trade, there couldn't be retaliation in respect of fish and vice versa. Now, rumour has it that the EU is winning on the point of having an overarching governance framework, and there does seem to be some sort of movement there. But it means that they will be able to retaliate and will no doubt impose quite stiff retaliation at the first sign of a breach by the UK. Right. I mean, we're told that dispute settlement is now one of the key outstanding issues in the talks on the free trade agreement, the other ones being state aid and fish. I mean, on, on dispute settlement, what do you think, if anything, the British are prepared to sign up to? How big is the gulf between what the British are prepared to sign up to and what the EU is asking for? So what the EU wants is essentially a cut and paste of what's in the withdrawal agreement. And just to remind you, in the withdrawal agreement, the dispute resolution mechanism um, works that there is consultation through the joint committee. Then it goes to an arbitration panel if the, if the joint committee can't sort things out. And then the arbitration panel um, can refer cases to the Court of Justice if a point of EU law is at stake. Now, um, for the UK, that final point is totally unacceptable. There should be no role for the Court of Justice um, in any dispute resolution mechanism. And what the um, UK wants is something more akin to the Canada-style agreement, where essentially it's consultation and then some sort of arbitration mechanism. Um, it's actually what the UK wants is even less than is in the WTO dispute settlement understanding, because the WTO dispute settlement understanding allows for um, the dispute settlement body to set up a panel, and then the panel um, makes a decision, and that can be appealed to the appellate body. The UK doesn't even want anything like that that looks vaguely judicial um, in form. They want it to be highly political, so probably um, the landing zone may be consultation. Yes, both sides want that, followed by arbitration. And then the interesting question is, how much power will the arbitration panel actually have to tell the defaulting state what to do? What are the time limits before the defaulting state um, is considered not to have complied and then retaliation can be imposed? But if the, if the EU accepted some of what the British are asking for with its Canada deal, why will it not uh, accept it where the British are concerned? Why is the EU being one to want a tougher citizen than it has for Canada? For simple reason, geography matters. Um, the UK 
will still have the EU as its biggest trading partner. That's not the case for Canada. Clearly, Canada has does far more trade with the US than it does with the EU. And the EU is very worried about having a powerful economic powerhouse on its doorstep, um, which has got, depending on what the final agreement says, zero, zero access and zero, zero is um, jargon for zero tariffs, zero quotas, um, having access to the EU single market, um, but then not complying with, for example, um, what the UK has signed up to over state aids. And therefore, they don't want heavily subsidised British goods having zero tariff access to the EU market. So the um, EU will be watching very, very closely what the UK is up to. And as you've already indicated, I think another reason why the EU will be very fixed on trying to get a, a rigorous and strong dispute settlement mechanism is, is because of the fury over the internal market bill. They just simply, there's a, the lack of trust. They, they, they do worry that the British, having torn up one treaty, could tear up another treaty, and they want to have a means of getting back to the British if they do. Before we conclude, Catherine, with a few comments on the overall prospects for a deal, perhaps could we just turn briefly to a little, little discussed aspect of the Internal Market Bill, which is its impact on the United Kingdom itself and the relationship between London and the devolved administrations in Cardiff, Belfast, and indeed Edinburgh. Because uh, that is certainly, if you talking to people in Scotland, that they think the internal market bill is not only bad because of these clauses we've been discussing, but for other reasons too. They think it is an assault on the the, the devolved settlement which they've reached with, with, with London. Could you tell us why, why it matters to the Scots and perhaps the Welsh and the Northern Irish too? Again, it's it's to do with geography, that um, the England um, is 85% of the economy of the UK and um, therefore will be in a position to dictate terms. Why is that? Well, you might recall that um, when following Brexit, when powers were repatriated to the UK, um, a lot of them went to the devolved regions, which will give them, at first glance, considerable powers to regulate all aspects of, of trade. However, the Internal Market Bill contains um, what's called market access principles, which are twofold. One is called mutual recognition and the other one's called non-discrimination. Now, let's focus on the mutual recognition one, probably the most important. Under the principle of mutual recognition, goods which are lawfully produced in England should be capable of being sold in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and vice versa. However, um, if the Scots impose um, higher standards then the Scottish government can insist that those higher standards apply to Scottish produced goods. But English goods, which are produced to lower standards, must be given access to the Scottish market. And there are very limited um, exceptions to that point. That means that English goods will be cheaper. And inevitably, it will eventually mean Scottish manufacturers will have to lobby the Scottish government to say we need to reduce our standards to English levels. Uh, in order to be able to compete. And so the effect of all of this is to say that Scotland will retain quite a lot of power to regulate, but in fact it won't be able to use those powers because those powers will have a detrimental effect on Scottish business, Scottish manufacturing. And that's what the Scots, the Welsh and the Northern Irish are really worried about. And because the England is such a powerhouse, economic powerhouse within the United Kingdom, 
Therefore, essentially, it means that England will dictate the terms of trade. Right. So are, the, are the Scots right to claim this, this clause back some of the powers that the devolution settlement initially gave to Edinburgh? Was that over the top? Not exactly that it claws back, because the answer is that Scotland can carry on um, uh, legislating in the areas that have been devolved to it. So the Scots have those powers absolutely exist. But the trouble is when exercising those powers, they can only exercise those powers over um, Scottish manufacturers and Scottish goods. And um, the mutual recognition principle says that goods made to English standards should be allowed to be admitted to Scotland. And therefore, you've got two um, groups of goods, English goods and Scottish goods, in competition. And when money is tight, consumers will buy the cheaper ones, which are likely to be the English ones, which are made to lower standards um, and also will benefit from greater economies of scale. So for a few years ago, the Scots increased the price of alcohol, some alcohol in Scotland, to discourage people consuming it. Would they be able to go on doing that kind of thing with these new provisions? Um, very unlikely. I should just say that the Internal Market Bill only applies to new legislation or to legislation where there is a substantive change. So if the um, Scottish legislation you refer to was altered um, and the minimum price per unit was increased, then that could minimum price per unit could be applied to um, Scottish um, alcohol, but not to English alcohol, which would be um, lawfully produced in England and could be sold in Scotland. It is made quite clear that um, as far as the Scottish National Party is concerned, this internal market bill is, is grist to their mill. It certainly allows them to make the case for an independent Scotland, because if, if as the reasons you've explained, there are pr problems with the internal market itself, um, based on these provisions we just discussed in the bill, let alone from the the uh, provisions which appear to be in the sort of international law, which Scotland is, which is a country in which lawyers play a big role, is not, not at all happy about either. And which perhaps brings us on to a final final few comments, Catherine, about the um, prospects for a deal as a whole. Starting with Scotland, which is where we've been in the last few minutes. Uh, I'm My own view, which maybe you may say I'm a naive optimist, my own view is that Boris Johnson needs a deal. One reason he needs a deal is because if, if there isn't a deal, there will be more chaos at the borders than if there is a deal. If there is a deal, a free trade agreement, I think there will be some chaos at borders because nobody knows how the new systems will work. The new IT systems probably won't be functioning very well on December the 31st. And there will be a certain amount of problems at the border. But if there isn't a deal, then there's a, be more need to, there'll be a greater need to check goods going from the UK into the EU to check the tariffs and other things like VAT and many other things. Um, and there'll be much less goodwill on the EU side towards mitigating the friction at the borders. So I think I think if there is a, a, a no-deal Brexit, the curse at the borders and the consequent impact on what is on shelves in shops and pharmacies will just allow those who um, are critical of the government to say, look, this is an incompetent government. They've, um, they've messed up COVID-19. They haven't handled that very well. They messed up the school exams. Now they're messing up Brexit. Although the British government will undoubtedly blame the EU for any problems there are, some of the, some of the, um, some of the, some of the some of the mud will stick on the government itself. And in Scotland, if you're the SNP in Scotland, you would welcome such chaos because it just reinforces your argument you're better off outside the UK. So I do think that one reason why Johnson wants a deal is that is the, the worry about the impact on the support for the Scottish National Party, which Scotland faces elections in May. And if, if the SNP does very, very well in those elections, it's harder for London to resist calls for a second referendum. Another reason is to 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 uh, 
Stop the Labour Party and other critics of the government in, in England attacking the Tory government just for being incompetent. And then, of course, there's the, there's the business lobbies as well. who They've been very quiet on Brexit in the, in the last few months. They're rather worried about upsetting Number 10 by being too critical. They haven't said much. They don't think Number 10 listens to them. I believe that as, as a no-deal Brexit approaches, if it does approach, they will start to squeal very loudly. And that will have some impact on Conservative members of Parliament, who many of whom are very scared of the prospect of no-deal. I mean, the hard line on Brexit has been driven by a small group of people in Number 10 who are not particularly interested in the deal, or at least indifferent to whether there's a deal or not. But that's not typical of necessarily the parliamentary party as a whole, or indeed the cabinet as a whole. So I do think that um, if... If uh, no deal approaches, a lot of people will start putting a lot of pressure on Boris Johnson to get a deal, and it will be quite hard for him to resist a deal. I don't know how it, how it looks to you, Catherine. Yes, I mean, I, I, I can absolutely see the merit in what you're saying, and um, and I should say I think there really needs to be a deal um, for the simple reason that if there is no deal, um, I think uh, relations between the UK and the EU will be toxic for several years to come. And there is common interest, there are common areas where we absolutely need to keep talking to each other. A case in point is man is dealing with um, terrorist threats, dealing with um, uh, criminal justice matters. So I think it's really important there is a deal. I think the deal will be a pretty thin one um, and it will be in areas which are exclusive competence to the EU um, for the simple reason that it will be much quicker to get through the EU um, than a mixed agreement. The mixed agreement would have to go through all of the national and regional parliaments too. However, I don't think we should underestimate the fact that this government is taking an ever more purist line to the point of about sovereignty. This government is absolutely um, fixed on the need for the UK Parliament to... Um, be sovereign and not be dictated to by um, any international power, especially the EU. And the trouble is any trade deal already curtails your sovereignty. I mean, just even if you just think about it very practically, if I'm selling you my car um, and I'm going to give you my car and you're going to give me um, money, inevitably that curtails my personal sovereignty because I'm, I'm only going to have the money and not the car at the end of the day. And it's the same with international trade. Um, any deal involves some give and take. Um, and usually it's considered for the benefit of both parties. What's so unusual about the situation we find ourselves in at the moment is that um, never before has a trade deal been done to distance um, a state from a, another state, in this case, of the powerhouse that's the EU, and of course, every, each side is finding their own way. And at the moment, the UK seems to be prioritising um, the purity of uh, sovereignty of Parliament over economic interests. Well, that, that's a very important point you just made, Catherine. It certainly reinforces uh, something I heard recently from the EU negotiators, some of whom said to me what they find shocking about the people in number 10 when they deal with the people in number 10 uh, is that they just don't care about the economy. When you say to them, look, this or that outcome of this in the FTA will lead to more or less economic growth, the, the guys in number 10 say, that's not really our concern. Our concern is sovereignty. It's being free of the purview of the European Court of Justice and EU rules and regulations. And they are relatively indifferent to the economic outcomes. It's very hard for the EU to understand because the Commission itself and the EU as a whole is, is driven by economics and trade and GDP and that kind of thing. And it takes it self-evident that 
more growth is good, good for everybody. So when you meet people in number 10 who just don't appear to have that worldview, you can see how difficult it is for the two sides to reach an agreement. Uh, having said that, I do think that um, uh, the pressures on Boris Johnson to reach an agreement will grow, because even if the guys in number 10 can sort of ignore the economy some of the time, it's harder for the, uh, the whole government to do so, and the Treasury certainly doesn't take that view. So I think the pressures for a deal will grow. But Boris Johnson and David Frost, as negotiator, and Michael Gove, who's in charge of the no deal preparations, will have to lean on people in number 10, like Dominic Cummings, who apparently is indifferent to whether there's a deal or not, and lean on them to compromise on key issues like state aid. And I think, um, as we've discussed in the internal market, but it really doesn't, that hasn't made it easier to get an agreement overall because, it, because of the way it's eroded trust. Um, do you have any final comments, Catherine, before we, we end this podcast? No, I think um, the next few weeks are going to be extremely bumpy. Um, what is surprising, given how little time there is, is just how little public dis discussion there is about Brexit. Now, clearly, COVID, as always, is dominating the discussion, and quite understandably so, as the number of um, COVID cases rise. But there is a risk that come November, we are facing the perfect storm of um, possibly... Um, a de facto lockdown of some sort, very large number of COVID cases, government uh, firefighting uh, COVID. And meanwhile, the time for negotiating a free trade agreement with the EU slipping away. Um, and we actually end up leaving almost by accident without a trade deal at the end of the year. Well, I think we both agree that would be not a good outcome at all. As you've already said, the, the, the good thing about a deal, however thin and meagre it may be, once you get a basic deal, you can build on it. It can be a foundation for the future. Future Tory governments or future Labour governments may wish to see a closer economic relationship and a closer security relationship and will, I'm pretty sure, want to improve elements of this deal. But if you don't have a deal to build on, it's much harder to do anything about bringing us together in the future. I think if there is no deal, uh, then the no deal isn't going to last for very long because I think the consequences of no deal wouldn't be very easy for the British to put up with for more than a limited period. So probably the negotiations would resume. But the, the ultimate, then, then we come back to the same issues we came back to before, the withdrawal agreement, the, the, the need for a free trade agreement, the need for an agreement on state aids and so on. But Catherine, thank you very much for joining us in this European Reform podcast. Thank you very much, Catherine. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the CEA podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.